0: My purpose, on the one hand, my personal purpose is is to learn, um, and to really explore. I, I think it's a bit pushing boundaries. I think it's it's based on on this curious mindset that I have rekindled a bit through my travels, uh, when I realized that I was too comfortable in in how I saw the world and how I saw the the playground that's out there. And my my children are wonderful reminder that that's it's about exploring, it's about learning, but also and that is, that is maybe the purpose that you asked for. The purpose in the, in the bigger picture is, is to also create spaces where other people dare to do that.
1: Welcome to Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. My name's Gemma Aston, and I'm part of the leadership team at The Hive. Our job is to serve leaders like you who are committed to making a positive impact. In order to make that positive impact, we know we need to keep our teams engaged, collaborative and enabled. But how do we do that? How do we build consensus when we're working in a complex stakeholder environment? How do we ensure we're the kind of leaders that people want to follow? In order to untangle some of these complex challenges, I've put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable changemakers to help us find the Beeline, the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline, lead the way.
2: So for any leader the moment that really gives us that, that uh, sleepless night is when we're having to deal with a crisis and those moments in an organization can really break or make our organization our, our opportunities to uh, really transform the work that we do and rise to the challenge or enter into a situation where we're just looking at damage control which can be very costly for what it is that we're trying to do. Now, any leader who's trying to create change is going to face those moments where we really have to do some uh, some soul searching as an organization and find our way through change. And so what better guide than Thomas Landhiler? He's the author of Navigating Beyond Crisis. He's worked in crisis situations all over the world, looking at Kenya, Afghanistan, uh, Tanzania. He's done ex- extensive volunteering with the Norwegian Red Cross and helps people really find their way through those those difficult moments. What I particularly like about Thomas's approach is that he is deeply inspired by his mentors and his mentors are indeed his children. So Thomas, it is my my real pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Well, welcome to Beeline.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for the kind introduction. Um, happy to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you.
2: You're in Oslo at the moment, right?
0: I am just a small town outside oslo but i always say oslo because that's what people know about norway usually if they haven't visited but it's it's still in the vicinity so it actually counts as oslo i'd say um and yeah beautiful city now in summer it's very nice i can recommend coming here in summer winter is for different tastes has also its charm but (laughs) it's a bit darker
2: do you know i i think i i was over there um towards kind of like uh, I'm, in fact, I remember it was graduation season because there were a lot of students riding around on buses with boiler suits, which was something I'd never seen before. I mean, what, what is that about?
0: It's a, it's a very particular concept for, I think they also have it in Sweden, but but certainly in Norway. Uh, it's called the Rus. Uh, it is, It's an old tradition where basically the the students when they finished the original university, they basically celebrate it. Now it has transformed into something slightly different. Um, here in Norway, the National Day is on the 17th of May. And a month before that, the, the last year students of high school, they celebrate this. So they wear these overalls, uh, different colors, depending on which school they go to. And they party a lot. So you have to do different tasks along the way. So that's when you get kind of different signs and symbols on your suit. And these buses have become increasingly popular lately because these buses are, it's almost like party buses, right? So they, they basically, they drive around and they have little discos in these buses and they, yeah, they celebrate that they are approaching the end of high school. Ironically, the exams are only after that period. So this is a little bit, uh, this is a little bit what I find interesting, not being Norwegian, but that's how it's, how it's evolved. And, um, yeah, it's a quite, a quite an intense month for the students.
2: That's, it's interesting because we're, we're looking at celebration there being before the the thing that you go and focus on and i, I mean i'm i'm a great believer in celebration of progress and um, particularly milestones the targets important but unless you're celebrating those milestones along the way what motivation is there to move on to the next one you know if your only reward for succeeding in something is more work then you know that that can become <laughs> quite wearing right um yeah it makes a difference right
0: there's a lot, a lot of debate around this. I mean, I, I personally am am more on your end, but I'm also older now. I think if you had asked me 20 years ago, I wouldn't have seen any issue with that concept. Now, you know, having, being a father myself, looking forward, even though it's far in the future, it's like, are my kids going to do this? And am I happy about it? Well, it's a tradition, see how it evolves. And that's also the beauty with traditions. They kind of, they evolve. At one point, there might be changes to it. And it's a little bit the topic that we'll also explore in this, in this uh, podcast is Well, it's a crisis, right? So things are changing. That's usually when crises are in place is when things are changing, when things are about to change. A system is about to throw over or significant things have to be turned around. And that's when often this comes as a surprise or it comes as an overwhelming situation. And that's when we call it a crisis. So let's see what happens out of this concept in the time until my kids are ready.
2: It brings up quite a lot, that word. It's a very emotionally charged one. Um, Is there a point where... We know that a difficult situation becomes a crisis. I mean, how do you define it? What's the line that it draws? Is it to do with that emotional state?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit critical of the term itself, the way it's used now. I mean, uh, originally it meant turning point, decision point, uh, similar. So basically things that have to change. Uh, later on, it was used in, in, in medicine. So basically you still have this expression post-crisis. In medicine, it was used, I think, in 1500s, 1600s. They started to use it for for the point when you know whether a, a treatment works or it doesn't. So re- basically, yeah. like, you know, you 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 know, do you have to change something or is this actually going the right way? Um, now it's become, as you also said, it's become very negatively loaded. So whenever we hear the term crisis, we immediately subconsciously go into this alert mode. This is also when you said in your introduction that leaders face this often, and, it's, and I think every leader faces it many times throughout their careers. They might not always experience it as a crisis because it might not always be labeled like that but we still take decisions constantly. And some of them have more weight than others. And the moment somebody throws in this word crisis, there's an elevation in speed, in emotional responses, hectic, time pressure, all the things that sometimes I argue are a bit artificial. And that's that's induced through the perception of well, now, now we have to do something or it's too late. That's not always the case. So if you if you go back to the original term of the word original meaning, you might actually take a little bit of that heaviness out. So, to your question, can you define it? Well, in a way, for me, that's a, that's a process that just just evolves. And the moment when you throw in the, the word crisis, that's usually when it is one. But only the decision makers need to accept that. I mean, we all experience a climate crisis. Not all decision makers have have accepted that yet. So there's a lot that is connected to this word. And I think it's it, arguably that m- what makes it a bit more difficult to manage these crises is the word itself it doesn't give much information it just describes a a period
2: you refer a lot to the way that uh, children approach a crisis and it's one of the things that really struck uh, struck me about your work and the team in fact you know uh, some of my team have been you know talking about you for quite some time you know before we've had the opportunity to meet Um, mainly because um, sure it's nice to have a thing right that that engages people that helps you to kind of talk through what it is that you want to talk about but what's really special about your work is just how much thought and reflection has gone into the comparisons that you draw about the way that children approach um those well changing situations you know and it brought me back to a point i remember uh, my little brother he was three. We were. We were. The car had broken down, right? So, what were my parents doing while well, they were, you know, fuffing around with the car and frustrated and you there's know, steam coming out of it, and uh, you know, three boys, we went off into the woods just to the side of the of the motorway, and we were just banging sticks around, you know, and seeing which ones we could break and you know, lightsabers and all that kind of thing. Which was fine until my little brother trigger warning, you know, we're, we're talking about, this does have a happy ending, but it's um, it's a difficult one. My, my little brother, who was three, simply disappeared. We couldn't see him anywhere. And of course, once we realised that, and my mum realised that, then, you know, it was undoubtedly a very, very emotionally charged moment. And we were all in that very, very strong crisis state. And the reason I bring this up is because about... Half an hour later, I, I, a rough idea of the time. I mean, I was I was seven. This car pulled up alongside with my little brother in the back seat. And this couple had stopped. My brother, what he'd done is he'd sat at the side of the motorway. He'd gone off to you know have a pee behind a tree or whatever and couldn't find the right bush, or whatever. But he ended up walking and walking and walking down the motorway. He sat at the side of the road and a car came up, stopped. And at three years old, he had the observation and the presence of mind to say, "My dad has a red Cortina, colour and make of the car," and they could see further up the road there was something going on. They drove further up and they dropped off my, my brother. Now, my brother, as it happens, now works in a different form of crisis management and that he's he's in the rock and roll industry and he, you know, he's a technician and he he fixes things when the show really must go on. There are tens of thousands of people outside the door, you know. Um, but that presence of mind, that observation, that collectiveness and that ability to kind of communicate and deal with the situation in hand was absolutely not what was happening, you know, up by the red cortina when all of us were, were really freaking out. And, you know, those emotional states, that observation, that finding some kind of solution is something that, you, you know, you you pull on time and time again in your posts. Mm.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that story. I think it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a wonderful illustration, and I'm I'm really happy that how it ended. But also, clearly, your brother has a cool head in situations like that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be working what he's working now. I think what what opened up my eyes to to these things was was a realization that I had. Uh, well, there were many realizations, but there were a few in a row where I realized that. My, the way i see the world is very different from the way my children see the world and part of that is because i have all the concepts that we're throwing around when there is a crisis i have already filled them with my assumptions with my experiences and children children don't have that so for example uncertainty right in crises we always talk about uncertainty now we are desperate also to fill uncertainty with our assumptions so we we constantly go there with our minds children's don't children don't do that and if you if you really look if you zoom out Children constantly live in uncertainty. They have, all, they have to learn everything. They, they don't know anything. So in, in in their state, their state is almost a constant crisis state because they have to learn, they have to make decisions, they have to adjust the ways of how they do things, observe not least what you just mentioned. And they show all qualities to get through these this periods with emotions. Emotions are a very important part, and I'm sure we'll tackle that that afterwards. But um, they get through these un- periods of the unknown, because they just explore it, they're curious about it, instead of, of letting that fear kick in. And yes, children also have fear, but still, they're looking for options. They're very way more focused on what options they have, they, 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 they have the advantage to not to be able to draw from so many different solutions. Because that is sometimes a disadvantage. Often in crisis, we talk about experience is such an advantage. Yes, that is true. At the same time, it can be a huge disadvantage because it can, it can block our creative thinking because we get locked in like we've always done it like this. So why does it not work now? Children, doesn't work. Let's try something else. And that is that is the beautiful flexibility and also this small observation, as you said, you know, the red cortina. We also underestimate the, often the ability of people, of, of children, because we're so quick in, in answering their questions instead of just playing it back. I've really developed this habit when my children ask me something that I know the answer to. I ask them, so what do you think about it? Just to hear how their minds work. Just to hear maybe they have the answer already themselves or they have an idea. And that in in turn gives me a better understanding of where they are, how they see the world, where they're in their development and where I basically need to top up or not even have to say anything because they know or have to give them a a helping hand. And that is this, this interplay is just what makes this so beautiful and there's so much to learn as an adult, or rather be reminded of, because we were all children, right? So we kind of had all these skills at one point in the past.
2: It's hard to do that as a leader, isn't it? When you've got that, that moment and you've got a team, maybe they're inexperienced, maybe that, you know, maybe from your point of view, they're inexperienced. Um, There's this moment that's come up, things have become very charged. And the temptation is to come on in as that, that hero mode, isn't it? Kind of like to come in and fix the situation. And which I think leaves an awful lot of insight and experience and perspective and ideas and creativity off the table. So before we kind of explore how we kind of deal with those moments and what's a good way of doing it, what else is the way, what other situations or approaches have you seen leaders take which hasn't worked? when dealing with a crisis. I think it's worth spending some time on that.
0: One is certainly what you just mentioned. It's uh, often, it, uh, I get this this response, it's very lonely at the top. And when we explore um, why it's lonely at the top, it often results in, it's, it's a bit of a homemade problem. So it's this over this almost overwhelming sense of responsibility. Like I have to make sure that everybody's safe, but with that often comes that all, everything has to come to me so I have to have to control over everything because one of the most common things that happens in crisis that leaders report and that I've also experienced myself many times is at one or the other point, you are overwhelmed. You have the feeling like I have no control of this anymore. And then you're seeking control. You're seeking like, an, an, and it quickly turns over to the other side that you need to know everything. And information is not, it doesn't always equal control. This is a very important point. Information can, can actually lead to the absolute opposite so if you have too much information you can be overwhelmed you can lose the the idea of where you want to go so this is this is a bit of a misconception that we sometimes have information gives us control uh, other things that i've hugely
2: is, powerful and that's uh,
0: yeah that's uh, it, but it, it's it's also difficult to accept because we have this natural instinct of you know the more i know the better but for decisions this is sometimes really not an advantage because it makes the decision sometimes way more difficult because I have to add factors that weren't even factors before and they might not even be relevant for, what, for this decision. But because they're there, I feel like I cannot, I cannot exclude them. I cannot ignore them because the, it's there. Other things that I've seen leaders do is they, they focus all their resources on basically on the leadership. So the leadership that has the, in companies that has the task to lead the company yeah, lead it also through a crisis, but also the everyday work is often completely depleted because the leaders sit in the crisis management team. day in day out. I have this this little story from the beginning of a pandemic of a, of a small software company who or yeah, software and did, uh, digital communication, and they almost didn't make it through the pandemic. And so I asked, so what happened? The, well, in the beginning, they said, we just said all our leaders sat in this crisis management team first daily several hours then yeah every other day and then a couple of times weekly but the point was they said the teams were left leaderless so we actually neglected the the business continuity which is the lifeline which is what what companies have to look at i mean we have to continue working and then figure out a solution and not use all our resources on on dealing with this crisis because that that really can deplete you of, of any chance to survive because you're not even having the basic lifeline intact. So that's also something I've leaders seen leaders do or completely ignoring, maybe a third one, completely ignoring that there is a crisis. So really this uh, holding on to the stubbornness, this, this confirmation bias, like I've taken these decisions and that's the way to go. Um, finally, maybe because it just pops into the head, also something is the external focus. So particularly when we talk about communication, there's a lot of a lot of people promote PR as the first and best response to crisis it's an important one but I've also seen the counter effects of it because if you're quick with going out a mess uh, throwing out a message to in response to the crisis that's what you have to chase because the message will trigger again more questions and you use resources on that that you lack internally so internal communication should have priority but that external focus can be a disadvantage sometimes
2: so we've got that external focus we've got um, burying our head in the sand is the expression of just ignoring that there is a crisis, There's trying to control the crisis, that's getting overwhelmed with information, all those, yeah I can see that there is a, there's the, that sense of control is a big element there, wanting to control the story, wanting to feel like I remain in control, wanting to be in control, wanting all the information so that I have the power to be in control, there's this this, this control element here and, and in my work I find that one of the biggest challenges that I have with, with leaders is getting them to let go of old goals, All right? There's this, we're still chasing this, we're still trying to deliver this, no this is the thing, we're not going to let go, this is what we're committed to, we've reinvested in here, this is what we need to do and sometimes that is simply just either no longer viable, no longer relevant, no longer even a positive thing to do, but all of that's irrelevant because we're so focused on that goal, which is putting all our thinking through that single point. And when we can let go of that attachment to that goal, suddenly we're we're so much freer and more open to new opportunities, new insights, new perspectives. But (laughs) it's so emotionally charged that the the fear of that going away from us or getting further away from us is, is that, is that not wanting to recognize like a sunk investment?
0: It's, that's a beautiful example also for, I would put that in the category of burying the head in the sand right. because you, you really, you, you hold on to, you think if you let go of what you've invested in, you make the crisis worse. But what it is, it's, it's, it's actually more often than not a relief because what, what comes hand in hand with this is sometimes that I see leaders and companies saying like, well, if you let go of this, our whole purpose disappears and that's not the case. The purpose is one of the most powerful things that can, keep, can can actually give you the feeling of control if you go back to why you're doing what you're doing. It's not how you do it. It's why you do it. Because that's what drives you. That's what gives you maybe new ideas. Let's just go back to the beginning and say, we really wanted to start this company for this and this reason. And how can we do it with what we have now available? The rules might, might change, but the game is still the same and we can play it. We have all, we are all at hands, maybe just think a bit differently. And there's numerous examples where companies came out of crisis way stronger. And there was even service in the past years that, that large consultancy companies did that, that said like when, when companies really invest and, and take that leap into innovation and say like we throw, throw overboard old ideas and just go for innovation in a crisis. Very high percentages came out way better after that. Because it's exactly, it's precisely that moment where this change is necessary. Because things happen around. There's, what we do doesn't work anymore. That's why we are in the crisis. So holding on to it becomes a paradox. It makes it probably worse.
2: When I first started out, I was um, teaching performing arts with teenagers. So, you know, theater environment, uh, show must go on, there's no resources. We've got to get creative, find, find some kind of solution. And normally working with teenagers, there's a crisis every week, right? Because there's, 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 there's so much change going on. And so my way of doing things was always to workshop everything. You know, it, it was trying not to come up with solutions. I wanted to kind of create their piece of work. I wanted to give them ownership of it. It was kind of the way that I, I like to direct. didn't always create the best show, but what it did was it created their show, and that was the best for them in my mind. So um, this kind of approach to work, workshopping scenarios was really the cornerstone of 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 the foundations of my work now and, and kind of doing workshops with different environments to help people through and then lo and behold you know I see uh, on your your LinkedIn this idea that workshop equals crisis and I wonder if you can just unpack that for us because that that brought up so much for me <laughs>
0: Well, that was, uh, yeah, that, that, I, I keep asking that. I mean, I keep getting asked that. I, I think since I work in both spheres, right, I work as a facilitator and I work as a crisis manager, less of the latter, but still involved in the topic. I, um, I try to also look upon the topic of crisis and crisis management from both angles. And I realized that similar to what I've noticed in children as a facilitator, there's so many skills that I have to apply that I learned being a crisis manager. And I think vice versa the same. Which, which just made me think like, well, if you look upon a workshop, is there, are there similarities to crisis situations? And there are. I think there are situations when decisions have to be made on the one hand from the facilitator, right? If, if something doesn't go according to plan or if I have participants who really don't wanna be part of this or if there's a conflict coming up, I have to make decisions, I have to make adjustments, I have to be creative. You know, sometimes exercises that don't work. So you have to redesign while you actually go all these things are highly relevant skills for crisis management. You have to be creative. You have to come up with, with completely new ideas, throw your assumptions and mental models overboard completely and continue. And some in a workshop, some of these mental models are produced by us through workshop designs, plans that we do beforehand, the numerous hours that we, we map out the red thread through the workshop and the little surprises that we put in and then they don't work. And not being thrown off by that is another quality. So being able to, yeah, Okay, seems like I'm losing control here, but I'm not because I have my little anchors. Same as crisis managers have to have. And workshops in itself are are an uncertainty. I can plan as much as I want for it. Same with crisis, I can plan as much as what I want for it, but it will play out different. I don't know really how workshop is going to even look in practice before, for example, see the room, right? It's a Mm -hmm. bit different digitally now, but, but before I see the room, I don't know before the first participants show up, I have no idea how the dynamics gonna be. And not even then, but I might get a bit of a sense. So there's a lot of unknown there. There's a lot of flexibility, adaptability that are required for workshop settings and similar formats just as much as, as it is in crisis. And what's made, what makes this nice is I think to combine those two because I think you can work with these formats in each other's sphere.
2: I, just thinking back to it, the time I I'd, I'd had a coaching client who was dealing with some challenges with their team and um, you know it, it got to this point of look just get everybody together you know it's like well that brought, that brought up an awful lot for her it was it was that you know well you know, anything could happen in that moment. I don't have control of that conversation, right? It's kind of like You get everybody in the room and all the stakeholders who are, you know, at loggerheads with each other, and it's, you know, you you, you raise the the uh, the chances of things going very wrong. But, you know, at least then we're actually facing that issue. And but simply to get to that point where you're kind of saying, well, look, this is this is where we are. We are unhappy, and this is where we want to be. Where we are a happier team how are we going to get there together just asking that question with everybody in the room and getting those stakeholders together can you know can make a tremendous difference
0: i i fully agree i think for me my my approach to crisis management and that's also when you said before that some leaders they're a bit you know when you have a team that you feel is inexperienced uh, you you have a tendency to take a little bit back the ownership uh, to steer a bit more of the conversation i think this these are all things that probably make your crisis response and also problem-solving in that sense uh, weaker. Because I think that the beauty of it is that you have a team. The moment you have a team, you have different perspectives, you have different experiences, you have different ways of thinking. And this is exactly what you need in a situation when when things are about to change, because you need to look at it from different angles. I'd love to do a little exercise that I always, always mention, that is simply asking people what is the opposite of a crisis. And the funny thing is when you get simply different responses, right? So some would say like, oh, it's stability. And others would say like, oh, it's, you know, uh, control. And the third one would say it's, it's safety. But then there's also people who would say like, oh, it's, this is, it's boring. Right. People who work a lot with crisis, they would just say like, yeah, boredom. Right. Or, um, yeah, stagnation. Right. So you, you have so many different things that you can interpret in this word. And now imagine all the people sitting around the table, having a different interpretation of the situation how powerful that is, how much opportunity, how many opportunities this can open up if you do it correctly. So bringing people together is just, for me, it's, it's yeah, it's great.
2: Because it lifts us out of our locked perspective, right? And suddenly we're in that place where we are holding in our mind the perspectives of a number of different people, which takes us out of ego, which moves us into that place where we, you know, we're working together. We're part of something bigger, right? To, towards something bigger than ourselves. It's a, it's a tremendous shift. How do you facilitate that?
0: Right? When you see, okay, we, we, we now finally, we, we come coming together to do this, you get a space, this gives motivation. Motivation is a huge resource, like it's not often looked upon as a resource. But if you have a motivated team in a crisis, it's an incredible resource. So uh, giving space to people and their ideas is, is yeah, it's, huge, it's very powerful.
2: Space for people and their ideas, building that motivation, getting those shared perspectives, shifting that insight. As a leader, how do I? How do I facilitate that? How do I build that into my culture? How do I how do I make that part of of what we do?
0: I, I'm always promoting habits. So for me, this is all, there's not one point when you need to prepare for a crisis. You're also never really prepared for a crisis because you don't know how it's going to play out. But for me, it's more about the concept of readiness. And readiness is for me something that when I can say that the company is ready when the disruption of the crisis that it faces is very, very small. So basically when when not many processes have to change, when not many ways of working have to really be adapted. And that can, I think that can be trained, but that also requires a cultural shift. It requires just in, entering small habits into your daily work. One could be that whatever you do, whether it's, it's a meeting, whether it's just simply a one-on-one, you exchange perspectives. It it make this a standard. And this sounds, this sounds so like, well, of course, but if, if you don't make it, make it explicit, it's not necessarily a habit. So really just, are there any other, other perspectives? Is there a way we can look at this very differently? And it doesn't always have to lead to something. It's really primarily about the habit because when you then have a crisis, it comes automatically. The same with assumptions. Assumptions are in my work a huge topic because I love them and I hate them because on the one hand, they're unavoidable. We need assumptions, not only in crisis management, but this is how, how we interact with the world. But then again, assumptions are also the biggest blockers for innovation and progress. Because we we basically we just if we stick to our old assumptions to our mental models, we won't go anywhere. But mo- most often, more often than not, we don't know that it's assumptions, right? We take it as we take it for the reality because it's been so manifested. If in a company you you constantly challenge your assumptions, you make that a habit within a team, or you you I like to assign guardians in teams that I work. So basically, you're Andrew, you're the guardian of. Um, questioning assumptions. So every time, you know, you have to be basically observe whenever we come with an assumption, you challenge us. So, so do we know? Do we assume? Is there any more information we can get? Or are we continuing to work with this assumption? And and those are small tweaks and twists that you can do uh, a final one, maybe there's there's many more, but the final very, very important one is what I call practicing the magic moment. It's basically nothing else than taking a stop, a pause and say like, so Let's Take a round on how we see the situation. Is it still the same problem? Have things changed? Do we have additional information? If so, is there anything we need to adjust? And then then move on. It's almost like a bit of a zoom out before we zoom in again. In workshops, I often see when I give when I give challenges, tasks, challenging tasks to the participant. I I see that I ask them, "Do you want to prepare?" I'm like yeah, uh, they prepare. Then a couple of minutes and assign roles and everything. And then I start the task. And of course, I add a twist. So the situation is very different from what they might have assumed. And that either causes them to be paralyzed or they still dive in, not taking a stop saying like, is the task still the same? Or has there something changed? And that magic moment can be a game changer. And practicing is just practice in every meeting, uh, put teams together, just innovation teams and give them certain habits that they practice. And once the team knows it and it's a cultural element you can actually uh, there won't be as much disruption because they will just continue doing this in a crisis and it's highly effective
2: listening checking assumptions building in those habits recognizing that that situation that problem that challenge is changing or or our perception of it is changing and in fact then that changes the problem right because we've got that deeper awareness i love that magic moment principle of stepping back and and asking what's changed what have we what have we learned? Is our understanding still the same? Because that also creates momentum towards or rec- helps us recognize momentum towards solutions, right? And if we feel like we're making progress, then we feel like we're influencing, which means we can become more engaged because what we're doing is is worthwhile. It's useful.
0: And it gives you control back or the feeling of it. And this is this is kind of the, because when you step back, it's like, so, okay, here's the situation. Good. We're still on track or... We have to readjust and that that is way more important than having all the facts on the table because if if you have your team around and it's just like yeah we're looking at it the same way great and i love what you said about the problem because problem is for me also of course a very very important topic working both with crisis and as a facilitator because i notice very often that we 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 struggle formulating our problems Mm -hmm. we formulating we formulate our problems on the one hand way too vaguely and then the second, which is which is maybe even the more tricky thing, we're not formulating them as a problem for us, but as a problem. So what is important when it comes to crisis management, you have to always have a grip on on what's my zone of, of influence. Like what can I actually do here? So I've made it also another habit uh, to formulate problems always in a way that starts with like what I, what can I do or what can we do about, and then you add on. Because this is immediately focusing on, my abilities here and when the answer is nothing then it's either not a problem you can solve or can make decisions about or you haven't really specified it yet the beautiful example that I always bring is the travel restrictions in during COVID I had also a small company and in the beginning we're saying like well our problem is the travel restrictions if I if you formulated what can I do about the travel restrictions nothing it's not my decision to make so the continuous process led them to the fact like so how can we continue running our business despite the travel restrictions, which is a very different problem from the original one that we had identified. But it was way more within our, our zone of influence saying like, so what, what do we, what do we have at hand? What can we do? And the magic moment helps you do that, because it helps you reassess, are we still on the same problem? Have things changed? And it gives you a bit of the control and the power back,
2: you said on your TED talk, that children are masters of the here and now and they they focus on their scope of influence, which I which I loved, I and mean, that sounds to me like what you're describing, right? Play play with what you've got. Yeah,
0: play with what you've got and don't get distracted by, well, time is always one of these factors, right? I also said that in the talk where, if we think about tomorrow, we're already in the assumption space. We're in the assumption and the hope space. So if we let this reality become our guiding point, then we, there's a high chance that we might be disappointed because there's a lot of other factors playing into that future reality. But if we constantly have this reassessing on the here and now, this focus focus on the scope of influence, it's like, what can we do right now? Then you always have, on the one hand, the feeling that you're actually doing something, you proactively manage the crisis. On the other hand, you also have really constantly, well, it's a motivational factor, what we said before, and you feel you're in control. And this feeling of control that makes you more powerful and more uh, feel more powerful and makes you feel more ready to take this crisis on head on and do something about it and dare to really explore and be curious so learning from children and that particular skill is uh, yeah it's also a game changer because it can really it reminds you that this is where things happen not yesterday not not tomorrow not in another place it's here and now where i can do something about it
2: you've made a massive impact clearly in the places that you've worked that, that ability to help organizations steer their way through those difficult moments. The question we ask all our guests is, you know, what's the, what's the biggest obstacle that, that you've had to overcome to, to make that positive impact?
0: Well, well thank you for, for the kind words. I, I hope, I hope I have had positive impact. Um, I, one of the big, best advices that I got when I, when I headed out to, to work in the human, humanitarian sphere was really this, basically my, um, to tame my own ambition level so i of course wanted to make as much impact for everybody as as possible but the, the advice was very clear like if you've made an impact positive impact for just one person as small as it is you've already made a positive impact so that was a bit my my guiding star um, and from that on you can always grow what i had to really overcome what i'm still working with uh, to overcome is is the realization of my ideas. I'm one of these people who has lots of ideas. I see ideas everywhere. And my problem is that I am sometimes too quickly jumping to the next without having the first really finished. So a little bit more. And again, in Norwegian, they say it like ice in the stomach, sitting sitting calm in the boat. That's something that I still have to work on because I think the more time I give an idea to, to grow, to ripe, so to say, the more impact it can potentially have, the more people might be, joining into that idea. So I have to get less jumpy, still on my ideas and have to accept that not all of them will be realized and not all of them re- will be realized immediately, to really make sure that the ones that are have a bigger impact. And that's a, a daily learning.
2: Oh, I can so relate to that patience, patience, Thomas, it's just, you know, I, I... I guess for me it comes from that kind of theatre environment that you know the longest it's going to take is about two months before the show's up you know and then it's happening and it's there and it's realised and then we can move on and move on to that next thing to actually make a significant work in fact it was my brother who said to me you know that if you if you want to make just the smallest impact or the smallest change in the world it takes a hell of a lot of work to do right and just to hold the course and hold the course and keep driving towards it while also recognising that things are changing and we might have to let go of some stuff in order to be successful. I think that's, that's um, yeah, that's always a challenge. And the and words that you said before about purpose have really helped me, that, that idea around, you know, remembering why we're doing what we're doing and recognising we can let go of the what we're doing in order to you know, realign with that why. It's a really powerful guiding point, I think. What is your purpose?
0: My purpose on the one hand my personal purpose is is to learn um and to really explore i I think it's a bit pushing boundaries i think it's it's based on on this curious mindset that i have rekindled a bit through my travels uh when i realized that my world and it's it's not even a physical thing but i i was too comfortable in in how i saw the world and how i saw the the playground that's out there, and my my children are wonderful reminder that that's it's about exploring, it's about learning, but also, and that is that is maybe the purpose that you asked for. The purpose in the in a bigger picture is is to also create spaces where other people dare to do that. So it's it's about sharing a bit of my experience, but not in the sense of like this is how it's done, but in the sense of this is how what I've experienced. So making people curious to do the same, empowering them to explore their own ways of thinking, like for example, leadership, right? So you can ask people, what is leadership without telling them? And you might get very different answers instead of telling them what it is, what we, what we very often try to do. So it's creating these, these arenas where people can experience because I have benefited from that and where they can build skills and yeah,
2: learn and explore. If people want to find you, Thomas, how do they get in touch?
0: I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, that is the platform that I've chosen for myself. Um, but I'm also writing a bit on Medium. Um, so please, LinkedIn, reach out. I'm always looking for for connections and uh, really new people to meet. That's kind of what I thrive off. And of course, the website is www.thecrisiscompass.com. There, you kind of can find information about what we do. Uh, we have a blog and, of course, a little bit of information on the book that you've mentioned before.
2: Thomas Lantala, thank you so much.
1: Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss next week's episode, still on the theme of listening and reflection, when Andrew talks to coach and insights consultant Adam McGilvery. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download at www.consultthehive.com forward slash Beeline. The Hive Change Consultancy provides radically effective training, coaching, and facilitation that enables a dynamic shift in leaders, sales teams, and entire organizational cultures. Get in touch today for an informal chat with one of our team. My name's Gemma Aston, and you've been listening to Beeline, Lead the Way.